Well, good morning. I guess we're going straight from uh, the guitar to, uh, to preaching today. Um, this morning, I, I had to laugh a little bit. Daniel said that everyone was sitting on the right side of, of the church because I guess is that where all the righteous people sit. But from my standpoint, y'all are on the left side, so I don't know what that says. <laughs> At least we got two people over here that are righteous. I'm just kidding with you guys. Let's go ahead and, and focus our attention on what the Lord has for us today. I'm going to go ahead and ask prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we thank you and we say hallowed be your name. God, we just ask that your kingdom would come. And today as I speak about your kingdom, I just ask that our minds would be clear and that my words would also be clear and that you would open our hearts and our souls to what you have for us today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So yeah, today I'm going to be talking about a little bit about the kingdom of God. And to kind of better understand the kingdom of God and to understand Jesus and that mission that he left behind us after he went into heaven, I'd like to take us back today to his time and listen to him speak on, the po- on this topic And it was a topic that he favored more than any other, and it's the kingdom of God. What he said about the kingdom of God in the first century, it really has great relevance to me and to us today here in the 21st century. Jesus said that the kingdom of heaven is near. As a matter of fact, that's the first words that he said when he made his first message. That's what he proclaimed. And then on another occasion, he said, one greater than Solomon is here. And we talked a little bit about Solomon today in Sunday school class. But think about the minds of the listeners here and where they were at when he said these words. These were powerful words because it reminded them of a time, the time of Solomon when Israel was a mighty nation. And they had hoped that the nation of Israel would be restored to those days. They were excited. Yes, the kingdom has finally come. But to the crowd's disappointment or dismay, it became clear that Jesus was talking about a strangely different kind of kingdom. The Jews wanted a visible, a physical kingdom. And Jesus announced a kingdom that meant denying yourself, taking up the cross, renouncing wealth, and even loving your enemies. I mean, this was just about the opposite of what they had expected. And as he continued to explain these things, I can imagine how their hopes for this just kind of crumbled. And then by the time Jesus was nailed to the cross, everyone had lost hope. Even for Jesus' 12 disciples, no matter how often or how plainly Jesus warned them about his death, it never really sank in to them. No one could imagine a Messiah, a Savior, dying and especially in the way that Jesus died. So what did Jesus mean by the kingdom of God? And in view of his followers' expectations and hopes, why did he keep getting them excited about this word kingdom? It appears 53 times in Matthew's gospel alone. Jesus, he never really offered a clear definition, but he did indirectly give us his vision of the kingdom through stories that his listeners would understand. Everyday sketches of farming, fishing, women breaking bread, and merchants buying pearls. Let's go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 13. Jesus 
tells these stories about the kingdom of God in Matthew chapter 13. As a matter of fact, I think he talks more about the kingdom of God in this chapter of the Bible more so than any other chapter. He says the word kingdom, I believe, around 10 times. And he said the phrase, the kingdom of God is like. In this chapter alone, he says it seven times. So I think it's important that we turn here to see what the kingdom of heaven is like. So I'm just going to read two short little parables that are in this. There's, there's a lot more uh, parables in this chapter, but I want to start by reading the parable of the mustard seed. Here's another illustration Jesus used. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed planted in a field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but it becomes the largest of garden plants. It grows into a tree, and the birds come and make nests in its branches. Now, when you think about a mustard seed, I, I was looking it up last night, and the picture was interesting because the guy was holding a mustard seed on the tip of his finger. And it was just this real little mustard seed on the tip of his finger. And I thought about, I don't know how the math would work out. I'd have to get Seth on that one. But putting up on the projector screen the actual size of a mustard seed and see how many people could actually see it. So it's a small seed. But then when you actually look at the tree, a mustard seed tree, that tree is, is pretty big. And that's exactly what the kingdom of heaven is like. It's a tiny seed, right? It falls on the ground. Birds probably don't even recognize that it's there. Um, and obviously, if birds don't recognize it, we're not going to recognize it. But given time, the seed sprouts into a bush that overtakes every other plant in the garden. A bush so large that it becomes a tree and the birds can nest on it. God's kingdom works like that. It begins so small that people give it no chance for success. Against all odds, God's kingdom will grow and spread through the world, bringing shade to the sick, the poor, the imprisoned, and the, un and the unloved. Jesus also talked about if we have a faith of a mustard seed. But given what a mustard seed can become, to me that really puts a whole new spin on a mustard seed. Because if we plant that and it grows, we may not move mountains on our own, but together as a church, we might come close. And then reading on here, uh, the parable of the pearl, uh, and a little further down in the chapter, um, so Matthew 13, starting in 44, verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like, there's that, that phrase again, a treasure that a man has discovered hidden in a field. In his excitement, he hid it again and sold everything he owned to get enough money to buy the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like, there's that phrase again, a merchant on the lookout for choice pearls. When he discovers a pearl of great value, he sold everything that he owned and bought it. So the kingdom of heaven is like a businessman who specializes in gems and comes across a pearl that's so high in value that he sells his whole business and everything he has to buy it. And even though that purchase costs him everything he owns, not for a moment does he regret it. God's kingdom works like that. The sacrifice to deny yourself and take up your cross turns out to be an investment with an outcome, not of remorse, but of joy beyond telling. These are the types of stories that Jesus told, and it made perfect sense to those that he told them to. But see, Jesus' appeal to people was a different kind of power. It wasn't a power of persuasion, like most kings do. It was a power of love. People who looked to Jesus for their political savior 
were constantly confused by the friends that he made. Think about the friends he made. He made friends with a tax collector on one hand, but yet he also spoke against the uh, dangers of money and the dangers of violence. And he showed love and compassion towards a rich young ruler and a Roman soldier. In short, Jesus honored the dignity of people, whether he'd agreed with them or not. He would not found his kingdom on the basis of race or class or any such other delusions. Anyone, even a half-breed with five husbands or a thief on a cross, was welcome to join his kingdom. Even I am welcome to join his kingdom. The person is more important than any category or label. And I feel convicted by Jesus every time that I talk about a certain cause that I believe strongly in. How easy it is for us to join and for me to join in the politics of polarization. Today especially, it's so easily easy to get caught up in that and to be drugged so far to one side of the story. But here, we see that Jesus calls us to love those around us. He calls us to love the woman who just came out of an abortion clinic. He calls me to love patients that I work with. There's so many stories of, that I could give you of different times when patients have been rude and just completely undeserving of love. Here I am trying to help you and you're treating me like this. But yet that's exactly what Jesus did. I don't know if you guys heard about the the fire that was in uh, Magnolia. It's uh, pretty close to where I work, but there was a trailer fire and the trailer burnt to the ground and the person in there was on oxygen and, and the oxygen tanks, of course, were blowing up and everything. Patient ended up in the hospital. This was right on Christmas Eve and, and uh, I went there to, to set her up on a, a ventilator to come home with. And she, she said that she was looking forward to Christmas and all the presents that she had bought and this is a poor lady had just completely burnt you know, to the ground. And um, so I set her up on the ventilator, and she was very thankful. Um, and she went to live with her daughter, um, who was apparently supposed to be taking better care of her. Um, when I went to set up the vent, apparently the daughter was supposed to be there. Um, so I went to the house that she was going to be going to, that the patient was going to be going to, over my lunch break, because it's right around the corner. And it was the trailer right next to the one that burnt down. And this particular trailer, it, it needed to burn down, too, if I'm being honest. But anyway, it was noontime, and I knock on the door and just to see if the daughter was there and see if I could meet her at the hospital. And man comes to the door, barely opens the door. What do you want? <laughs> and I said, well, I'm, I'm looking for the daughter of such and such. He's like, yeah, she's still asleep. What do you need? I said, well, when she does wake up, and this is at lunchtime, mind you, um, <laughs> please let her know that I want to meet her at the hospital so I can show her how to use this and she can help her mother. Well, she never ended up at the hospital and I showed her mother how to use it. The week later I go back because I always like to, to check in on them about a week after they use the machine to make sure everything is going good. And I come and from the outside of the house you can hear kids screaming, people yelling, dogs barking. And I, I'm like, what am I getting ready to walk into? I ask that question quite a bit in my job. So I walk in there, of course, there's, there's like five kids in there, and, and the lady was sitting there on the couch, and I went in there and checked on her machine, and 
she was very kind, and actually the people that were there were, were very kind as well. Um, and, you know, I was um, professional in my jobs, but maybe not so much so in my thoughts. And I came out of there and I'm thinking all these thoughts, like, what, why are we paying for these people to live like this, and, and on and on. And I hear the Spirit of God convict me and say, what you do for the least of these, you do for me. And who we show love to the least of these is how much we love him. And we need to show that love to others. If I can't show love to such people, I have to question whether or not I truly understand Jesus' gospel. Jesus' love breaks down the walls that we create and gives grace to others. Regardless of the merits of a given issue, political movements risk smothering love. From Jesus, I learned that whatever activism or whatever uh, movement that I get involved in, it must not drive out love and humility, or otherwise I betray the kingdom of heaven. And history shows that when the church uses the tools of this world's kingdom, it becomes as ineffectual or as violent as any other power structure. We, Amy and I uh, went to Spain, and, and we when we were in school and went to different cities, and in these cities were these different temples and different cathedrals and things. And going over the history, you see how it was first started by maybe a Muslim religion, and then the Christians and the Christian crusades that take place in Europe, almost every single one of those were taken over by the Christians. And you think about that, you know, part of me is like, well, good, I'm glad the Christians took it over. But at the same time, look at how ineffective the church was in those days because they weren't showing the love of God. And whenever the church has intermingled with the state, the appeal of faith suffers as well. Ironically, our respect in the world declines in proportion to how vigorously we attempt to force others to adopt our point of view. Jesus said nothing about a triumphant church sharing power with authorities. The kingdom of God appears to work best as a minority movement in opposition to the kingdom of this world. When it grows beyond that, the kingdom subtly changes in nature. The gospel of Jesus was not a political platform. And although democracy gives Christians the right to express themselves, our Constitution says that we are, it is for the people, by the people. So we have to, in some in some cases, stand up against a government that is doing wrong because it is for the people, by the people. And I think sometimes we get a little bit confused and we think that, you know, we're living in the same type of time when Jesus was when there was kings. But it's a little bit different now. But that being said, um, we have to be careful that we don't invest so much into the kingdom of this world that we neglect our main task. Our main task is introducing people to a different kind of kingdom, one that is based on grace and forgiveness. And although passing laws to enforce morality serves a necessary function, it never actually solves human problems. The mission that Jesus gave us to accomplish is to communicate God's reconciling love to sinners. Jesus said in John 13, 34 to 35, he said, a new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples. Does he say if you have power 
in the world that you're in? Does he say if you rise up and make laws against these people? Or what does he say here? He says they will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. And as a matter of fact, he made that statement the night before his death. And on the cross, he forgave us. He had come above all to demonstrate love. He is the definition of love. God is love. Jesus said that the kingdom of God is within you. And clearly the kingdom of God operates by a different set of rules than any earthly kingdoms. And as a matter of fact, it probably operates by the opposite rules. God's kingdom, it doesn't have any geographical borders. Its followers live right among their enemies, not separated from them by a border or a fence or a wall. It lives and grows inside of human beings. Those of us who follow Jesus possess this kind of dual citizenships. Yes, we live in, ex- in, external, in an external kingdom, but at the same time, we belong to the kingdom of God. The Christian church in China, I always have to think of them because um, they're a good example of this. They were a people who were persecuted, yet despite of their government oppression, a spiritual revival broke out that it could probably be considered maybe the largest revival um, in the history of the church because as many as 50,000, and that number is still growing, believers gave their allegiance to an invisible kingdom even as the visible kingdom made them suffer for it. In fact, problems seem to arise when the church becomes too external and it gets too cozy with the government. China's underground church fervently prays for their leaders, but they maintain a careful independence. And we must continually ask ourselves, is our first aim to change our government or to see the lives in and out of our government changed for Christ? In a nation like the U.S., I think it's a little bit too easy to get the two kingdoms confused. And we think of 2 Chronicles 7.14 where it says, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their evil and wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. But I think we forget that when those words were spoken, it was to the nation of Israel. It wasn't to the nation of, of the United States. And we, think, we kind of tend to think of the U.S. as a Christian na- nation. But God's not working now primarily through nations. He's working through a kingdom that transcends nations. And that being said, the U.S. is growing increasingly secularized. And I have to admit, if I'm being honest, that I would prefer to live in a country where the majority of people followed the Ten Commandments and acted politely towards each other. But the real challenge or the focus of our energy and my energy should not be to Christianize the United States, but rather to strive to be God's kingdom in an increasingly hostile world. The kingdom of God is a society that welcomes people of all races and social classes, It is characterized by love, not polarization. It cares for the weakest of members. It stands for justice and righteousness in a world enamored with selfishness and decadence, a society in which members compete for the privilege of serving one another. This is what Jesus meant by the kingdom of God. Jesus gave us a preview of how the world will be restored when the kingdom of God does come. 
He made peace. He fed the hungry. He healed the sick. He brought the dead to life. He brought me from death to life. And he made the message of God's kingdom powerful by actually living it, by bringing it into reality among the people that were around him. So these fairy tales, uh, they probably sounded like fairy tales, the, uh, the prophet's words to Israel, a world in which was free of pain and tears and death, referred to no mythical world, but rather it referred to this world. Since we are the church and we are Jesus' successors and his ambassadors, we are left with the task of displaying the signs of the kingdom of God. And watching the watching world, the world that is watching us, will judge the merits of the kingdom by us. That's a big responsibility that we have. But one thing that we need to recognize is that we live in a transition time. A transition from death to life from human injustice to divine justice, from the old to the new. That is what God is doing, and that's what the kingdom of God is about. Tragically, we are incomplete, but yet we are marked here and there, now and then, with clues of what God will someday achieve in perfection when that transition is complete and we are given life to the fullest. So while we are in this time of transition, my encouragement to you all is to go and plant these seeds and to watch how God grows the kingdom through us. We are the kingdom of God.